I'm like debating whether I should say this because it, it might get locked <laughs> off. But, you know, when I was seven years old, the CIA tried to recruit me. And, really? Uh, yeah. And then just like that, Courtney drops that massive bomb right there at the end of the interview. Now, if you want to find out a little bit more and how uh, maybe the CIA might have been trying to recruit Courtney Turner, you have to check out this episode. And we're going to have to have her back on the show because she just throw that out at the very end of the episode. We didn't really get a chance to go dig deep into that. So we're going to have to have her back on to talk a hell of a lot more about that. Okay. Now, this interview was by far my favorite to date. I truly enjoyed talking to Courtney. Wow, what a conversation we had. If you do not know Courtney Turner's work, you have to, you must. So go to the description below, click the link and check out all her work. She puts out a massive amount of content. She's a great researcher, does some super deep dives. And honestly, her podcast and the material that she puts out, uh, it's its its heavy. Like, like she goes deep. So um, yeah, check that shit out. Uh, now, as far as for this conversation, we covered a, quite a few subjects. Uh, we talked about Courtney's uh, early life and how she went from all of uh, her life experiences into podcasting. We discussed some philosophy, of course, a little psychology, and we definitely got into John Coleman. We got into the Tavistock Institute. Uh, now, uh, that's a subject that you're going to be hearing a hell of a lot more about here on The Study of Stuff. Uh, I'm going to be focusing heavily on uh, social engineering, culture creation, and new age deception. Um, a, because that's a subject that I've, I've been into for many, many years. Uh, and it's kind of important that we start talking about some of this stuff, as well as uh, my own personal experiences, which is one of the reasons why I've taken a little bit of a break from podcasting. I'll, I'll put a video out about that very soon. But uh, another thing I wanted to mention about this episode is that uh, we had some weird technical difficulties, like on both of our ends, not just on mine. Uh, we had some drop calls. At one point, Courtney even said her computer just shut down and restarted on its own. Uh, it was strange. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> I remember back in the early days when I started learning about Tavistock, I'd hear these stories about people if they named the Tavistock Institute and message boards, they'd be kicked out. So I don't know if it has anything to do with that. But anyways, here's the episode. My interview with the great Courtney Turner. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the study of stuff. Very special guest today. I know I always say that, but um, I was really, really looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Actually, even before I reached out to her and um, mm. I had her on my mind just because I'd been following her journey from uh, almost the beginning. And wow. uh, I, yeah, I was like, I remember, um, I think it was uh, tw- 20, uh, 2021 or mm-hmm. January, February, around that time, I think you had done uh, your very first interview with Alex Newman, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, so like, because I, I was looking into him a little bit and then, uh, you know, I kind of forgot about uh, your podcast and then all of a sudden <laughs> it popped up again when you were uh, when you had interviewed Jay Dyer. Mm-hmm. But um, the reason I bring it all up is because I was impressed from the beginning. It kind of felt like you were just dipping your toes into this world. And um, then you kind of took the advanced route, route if I, if I could put it that way, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're like going into some hard, serious uh, subject matter. Uh, a lot of the sub- subject matter that I'm very interested in, and I was impressed. I really liked your style, uh, and um, I, I was um, interested in your perspective. Actually, oftentimes you'd give a different perspective, being that it it was kind of new to you, I guess that world, mm-hmm. I suppose, mm-hmm. and. Um, 
yeah, it, it really impressed me. I, I, I always wanted to have a conversation with you, but uh, I was kind of going through my own weird journey. I was kind of uh, rethinking some of the things I've uh, believed in and this and that. And I was like, it, it's not it's not time yet. And then uh, her name, of course, is Courtney Turner. And uh, so Courtney um, started posting about uh, some research she was doing. And I started to notice a pattern that your research seemed to kind of follow the same research I was doing from a different perspective, but we we're kind of on the same uh, path. Like this, we, we were sniffing the same, you know, the scent. Okay, we got to follow this trail here. And uh, then I think you posted something about uh, you're working on some really serious uh, subject matter and it was a really big deep dive. It was a huge subject and that you may need some help. Yeah. At that point, I was like, okay, I think that's my, my sign. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out. I waited a couple of weeks and I reached out to Courtney. And I uh, started off by saying that um, I've, uh, I'm have i kind of going through like a little um, rethinking, like I said, of a lot of my, my beliefs and values. And uh, one of the subjects that we both have uh, a huge interest in, which is the Tavistock Institute, um, was one of the reasons why uh, I started to rethink a lot of the things I believed in. And I noticed that um, you were kind of, uh, from a different perspective, going down the same path. So I thought I'll reach out to her and I'll let her know what I'm looking into and see what she thinks. And I described uh, Tavistock, John Coleman, uh, social engineering, uh, culture creation, uh, a couple of books, you know, Gustav Le Bon and so on and so forth and psychology, behavior psychology and all of that. And uh, she's like, yeah, I'm looking into all those things too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we decided to maybe uh, work on a project together. I don't know how this is going to work itself out, but uh, I'm really excited to see where it all goes. And um, Courtney, welcome to the show. Thank you for, for taking time out to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and, that was, that's really cool to hear uh, about your experience in uh, like following me. Uh, and then it's also interesting when you bring up Jay, I had actually the first episode I brought Jay on was to talk about Tavistock. Because right. I once I found out about Tavistock, like I was just searching everywhere trying to find information on it, and not that many people covered it. And then I found a, an episode he had done uh, where he covered, of course, Dr. John Coleman wrote, you know, his book, which is on Amazon for a bargain price of just shy of five thousand dollars for anybody who's looking for it. Although I, on my Telegram, I do have the. P I can't believe you actually have the physical book. Um, <laughs> I actually t I p the like pin the t the PDF on my Telegram, but. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that was actually uh, so when I mentioned that I was uh, listening to, to like, I think uh, the, the very first episode you had, I think I revisited your podcast uh, when you were talking about Tavistock with Jay. I think that's when I was like, oh, yeah, I remember her. She had the whole Alex Newman thing. And uh, that's when I, I think I was like, oh, OK, let me let me follow her uh, her journey. Just because like mm -hmm. like you said, it, it's not mm -hmm. common to have a lot of people discuss the subject of Tavistock. Mm hmm. Yeah, until uh, recently where they were being sued for uh, the transgender. Yeah. yeah, most people had never even heard of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was surprised even Douglas Murray uh, did, uh, did a little post about the, the transgender Tavistock connection thing. And I was like, oh, he, wow, he's talking about that. That's kind of weird. Who, who did? Like, Douglas Murray. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. well, I, he's British, so I guess that would make a little bit of sense. But yeah, yeah. Definitely. So uh, usually I like to start off the show um, asking my guests to kind of really give like detailed uh, journey. Like, uh, tell me about your life. How did you go from birth to where you are now? And mm -hmm. 
yeah, don't hold any punches. Go. I make I'm, people's stories. I think are extremely important. Mm-hmm. I think uh, understanding where a person comes from, their perspective, and how they end up where they are today is actually more important oftentimes than the actual uh, like source material and getting down and and dirty with information sure right yeah how how they came to know what they know is sometimes more important to to understanding than what it is they know that they're sharing i would agree um yeah and and i think because human beings are uh social creatures and mythological creatures we learn by storytelling we learn by proxy so oftentimes we would miss something uh that we or we would you know, ascertain uh, information that we wouldn't otherwise by hearing the story, you know? Right. Yeah. Oh, well, my life began, uh, this actually how I began my college essay, that my life began as a series of challenges. And since then I have, I have continued to seek out mental, emotional, and physical challenges to surmount. (laughs) Uh, So the story goes that I was, uh, my mom had germ measles during first trimester pregnancy. that I was, I, I now preface it by saying the story because uh, those who follow my podcast know I've gone pretty deep down the uh, germ versus terrain theory rabbit hole. So, you know, <laughs> but yeah. for the purposes of sharing the story, I will relay the story as as I learned it. And that is what they told my mom. She was born that she had uh, germ measles during the first trimester of my pregnancy. She, my, the way that supposedly it was all contracted was that my father was very sick. He, had uh, spent some time with the doctor, my mom's doctor, and the, the wife who had been traveling. She was also diagnosed with uh, congen- with uh, germ measles, and then my father got sick. And then my mom found a rash on her upper chest, much more mild symptoms than my father, but she was pretty convinced that she was afflicted. And so sh- she went and had a titer tested. The doctor was dyslexic, read the titer as being 112, but it was really 121. If the doctor had read the titer correctly, my mom would have had an abortion. So when I was born, the doctor was covering up and uh, the hospital was covering for the doctor. And they kept saying everything was normal. Everything was totally fine. And my mom noticed that one of my eyes was rolling up in the top of my head. And they kept telling her the baby's eyes don't focus. And she eventually determined that my eye looked a lot like her father. So my maternal grandfather, who had just had cataracts. They finally found a doctor who confirmed that I was born with cataract. And they did a cataract removal surgery when I was three months old. Cataract surgery back then was very different than it is today. So they pulled the iris. They left debris. They had to go back and do what's called a retinal cleanup. When they did that, they found rubella pigmentation behind my sighted eye, and they determined that I was born with congenital rubella. That At that point, uh, they were pretty sure that I was going to be completely blind, deaf, autistic, retarded. Uh, forgive me, I know that's not you know politically <laughs> no correct, but, but they meant it literally, yeah. uh, cognitively impaired. And that the best they, they could hope for me was to find a nice institution for me to spend my life. That's what they told my mom. Wow. So fortunately, my mom did not agree. However, I was rendered with several complications from early age. So some of them included, I'm I'm hearing impaired, significantly hearing impaired. I wear bilateral hearing aids now, but I did not get hearing aids. So I was almost six years old. I learned how to speak by reading lips. I had heart surgery when I was a year old. I was born with hypotonic limbs. So for those who aren't familiar, it's the opposite of hypertrophy when the bros go to the gym to get 
to build their muscles. This is the opposite. My muscles were not developing. Um, I had I had a asymmetrical bone development, fine graphic motor impairment. There were several complications, but you know the big ones are you know definitely the hearing and visual impairment. Uh, so that was then my parents sued because you know they were covering up for the doctor, and it was considered a wrongful birth case. The mm -hmm. lawyer was the same lawyer as Larry Flint's lawyer for Hustler. Uh, really? And yes, and it was the same time. And uh, that is what it was called. It was called the wrongful birth because the alternative would have would have been to abort me. So I I I only say that just because it's an interesting element to the story, and obviously Absolutely. it shapes a lot of my thoughts on uh, you know how I view life and how I view mm -hmm. definitely abortion. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't see that I was a wrongful birth. I'm very grateful to be here. So As are uh, yeah, so. <laughs> So, yeah, so that was kind of my birth story. And, uh, yeah, I don't know where we go from here because there's obviously a lot, but it was a, definitely not a typical birth story. So there were a lot of, you know, physical uh, challenges from the get-go. Some of how – I'm sorry, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, I mean, we can go through a lot of that. Or maybe I'll allow you to ask me questions if you want, but I can jump forward because my – beginning my podcast actually is related because I was yep. in Santa Monica, California. The uh, measures were quite draconian. You know, the COVID measures were very restrictive, oh, yeah. oppressive. Everybody was wearing a mask, you know, uh, the, the lockdowns, the social distancing, all of those things were, you know, really pretty extreme compared to some other parts of the country. And, because I'm hearing impaired, even though I wear hearing aids, I still depend very largely on lip reading for right. uh, clarity of speech. So while I wear the hearing aids, they may give me the volume. They don't necessarily give me, uh, you know, uh, the clarity of speech, you know, auditory acuity. And I get a lot of that from non-verbal cues, which were being masked literally. Yep. And that was incredibly challenging for me. I'm also, because I'm blind in one eye, I only have about 60% the peripheral vision that somebody who sees binocularly would see. Mm -hmm. So when I wear the mask, it further reduced right. my peripheral vision, which was already limited. And that was very frustrating for me, uh, especially since I, you know, I really couldn't do a lot of like my aerial stuff. You're up in the air, like, sometimes 26 feet in the air. And if my vision is already being restricted and I can't hear the teacher because they're wearing a mask. So it was just very isolating. I was very depressed. People were getting very frustrated with me because I couldn't understand them and they would feel like I, I could hear, you know, they'd see me responding. I'm like, uh, yeah, it's appropriate for you to be speaking. That doesn't mean I have any clue what you're saying, you know? Right. Uh, so it was incredibly frustrating and challenging for me. And most of why I started the podcast, a lot of people had suggested I do it. And while the notion was actually quite terrifying to me, the idea of having naked face conversations with people was incredibly exciting. <laughs> so, and I thought it might literally save my life. I mean, I was really, really depressed. I noticed that after about a month, it, we were a month into lockdowns, I was every day walking to, uh, it was down the block to this liquor store. It's the only thing that's open, you know, the, uh, of course, right. Like the, the donut shop, the liquor shop, 
are open, but your dentist is closed. Yeah, it made all the sense in the world. It makes the gyms so much and sense. dentists are closed, but you know, yeah. liquor shops and donut shops perfectly sen- sensible to keep open. So, but they were open, and the owner was this. You know, he he took his mask off to let you know, so I could understand him. He didn't make me wear a mask when I walked in, and uh, he just talked to me every day. You know, it wasn't necessarily deep conversation, but, you know, a little bit of chit chat every single day. And I noticed that at the end of a month, I had poured a glass of wine and it was a like one of my favorite wines and I didn't enjoy the taste of it at all. And I realized it was because I was constantly going to the liquor store and I don't normally drink at home, you know, like alone, like right. it just not. Um, but I was doing that because that's, you know, that was... Well, what I realized is that I was doing it because I was so desperate to have a conversation with someone. And it was someone who would yeah. let me talk to them barefaced. And yeah, so I, uh, when people were suggesting the podcast, that was one of the reasons that I started it. I was like, okay, well, you know, even if I don't necessarily air the recordings anywhere, the notion of being able to have potentially meaningful conversations with barefaced people would be you know, very, very powerful for me at that time. So, yeah. Well, that that's uh, that's quite the story. And I, I can relate to Toronto was under serious lockdown as well. I know California was one of the worst states and Toronto was most definitely one of the worst uh, cities in, in Canada, like hardcore. So oh, I right. totally understand. It was all, it was just like liquor stores, weed stores, and like, that's it. Yeah. Awful. It's pretty nuts. It's so awful. Yeah. So how did you pick your first guest then? Um, so I think I had actually done a couple of like recordings that I might not have aired. They were more just like friends who I'd have conversations with. Uh, you know, I had no technology or anything. I mean, I didn't have a microphone. It was just a computer. And my, there was a friend of a friend that he was in the episode with Alex, uh, the first episode that I aired. So the first episode that I actually did was my story. And yeah. I did that. <laughs> that was actually really kind of a strategic move because a lot of the platforms you have to be approved to get the podcast. Yeah. And I was very concerned about the no sh- the nature of my topics and not being accepted <laughs> to the platform. But I felt that my story might be a little bit more neutral, you know, fit into more of the inspirational kind of genre and hopefully they wouldn't be flagged that answers a a big question of mine because like every time you have your introduction i was like i like that you say all that stuff but i'm like there's a little bit of that but it was it was it caught me by surprise like why did she pose it that way and i was now that now i understand why that makes that's smart that's a smart move that was that was my initial yeah um the intro we're definitely going to redo i mean i think the intro also is that i really at the time wasn't necessarily sure with which direction i was going to go with the podcast um, but yeah, so my first episode was my story and it was for that reason. I, I knew that I had to send something off my, but then I was doing a show and we did several episodes actually, mm-hmm. uh, with Eric Shine, who was in the podcast, uh, yeah. with me, with Alex. And he had recommended reaching out to Alex that he had done some work with him before. And, uh, I had seen Alex speak before and I was a really big fan of his work. I said, yeah, let's definitely bring him on. And, uh, the episodes with Eric, because it was kind of its own show, and that, that that just never, we aired, we recorded it, but it didn't really end up going anywhere, so, um, but that episode did, so. 
I aired that. But that was kind of how the first guest came to be. Yeah. Yeah. Now it, it, it makes a lot of sense, especially like, uh, like I, cause I've heard that from a few people that started podcasts around that time. Cause I, um, that basically one of the reasons people started the podcast was they were lonely. Like they, 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 they weren't able to go out. They weren't able to see people. And it was like one of the very few opportunities they had to actually connect with someone. And like, how sad is that? That's, it's so sad. The other thing that was happening for me was that because I was so isolated and I was really depressed and lonely is that I started to, um, I, I was doing a lot of reading, you mm. know, like I was, I, I sat down the very first day of the lockdown <clears throat> and I thought that it would be the perfect opportunity to write. I still need to right. find the time to write, but <laughs> I literally at me the too. end of 10 hours had a white screen staring back at me and decided that it was not the right time to write. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> I was just way too depressed and anxious. You know, yeah. I could just not just, it wasn't so much just my own emotions it was the i'm very empathic and i could feel the just kind of the weight of the world i mean it sounds kind of cliche but it was was a very dark time and i think i was feeling so much of the pervasive anxiety and depression that was around me not just you know my own emotions and it was a really just not the right creative space uh so i knew enough about you know creative uh, endeavors that you really can't force creativity so yep. I took a step back I and I, that day I ordered at the end, well, that night after I had, you know, a blank screen staring back at me after 10 hours, I decided I would do some reading and I ordered 11 books and I thought maybe the reading would inspire me. And of course I start reading all this stuff and then I wanted someone to talk to about all the things I was reading. So I, I chewed my mom's ear off and I'm very grateful that she <laughs> indulged me. Um, but I also then, but then I felt kind of guilty about just like chewing her ear off on like all the books that I've read that she hadn't necessarily read with me. And, you know, so I, I then started talking on social media. I started posting, you know, some screenshots of things I was reading, commenting on them. And I really didn't expect them to be controversial because at that time it was more psychology, philosophy, really mm-hmm. wasn't too political i i was really just kind of searching and trying to revisit a lot of my earlier academic roots and that was really what i was doing so i really just didn't expect it to be controversial but i think that your worldview seeps through and people people like to argue (laughs) so you know so you're on social media and it's like you know you say orange and they say no it looks like an apple you know it's a So I, people just started to uh, be very contentious and uh, rebuttal, and I was a little baffled by it. But I started to think, well, I actually have a lot of thoughts on what's actually going on right now in the mm-hmm. more political context. And I've always felt like, you know, at the time I was much more immersed in the uh, two-party paradigm. And I always felt that the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems with the political right was that they engaged in auto critique and I knew that didn't work so well in the Maoist struggle sessions. So I didn't want to be a part of the problem. And I made kind of a vow to myself to start speaking out so that at least I wasn't part contributing to the problem. And so I started posting more politically oriented articles and I really didn't start with much commentary. I really started with articles and just sharing information and I was getting so much backlash that 
So that I think in some ways really inspired the podcast as well. Cause it was like, okay, well I want to have conversations. I don't want this just to be people behind screens, like yep. screaming at each other, you know, proverbially through screens. So. Uh, my apologies yet again, Courtney, the boogeyman's coming out after us. <laughs> <laughs> it seems that way. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good God. So, so where were you, yeah, you I don't know. What? Uh, okay. So I, I'll, um, so basically you're, you're, uh, you're letting us know that you want to have conversations. Uh, so go from there because I think that's a very important, uh, point that you're making. Cause at that time, a lot of people keep forgetting what it was like at, uh, you know, in 2020, 2021, like so much has happened in the last three years and kind of people huh. completely forget what it was like and how it felt for people. And, and you're right. A lot of people would be posting. Like, I remember a lot of people posting like really basic stuff, nothing political at all and people just just losing it on them and i'm like what are you what are you what are you arguing with people so i can totally see that happening to you so yeah. um for what, what were you reading actually like what were you kind of like posting that was getting people so like um, well when i started posting political stuff i mean i it, it, people who didn't agree obviously oh, i yeah. mean it was like you know, I think at that time it was probably a lot of the BLM stuff was happening and uh -huh. the critical yeah. race theory and yeah, so I think that was probably stuff that I was posting. Um, okay. Certainly stuff about uh, COVID. I, I was posting stuff on that. Um, the election. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. I mean, it was definitely politically charged. I didn't, but as I said, I didn't start that way. I started out posting stuff like, you know, reading Nietzsche and like... <laughs> have been uh i was posting uh i think i had just read maps of meaning and i was mm -hmm. talking about that um yeah it really the, some of the stuff i was posting earlier on shouldn't have been uh political but i think as i said i think worldviews come through and so if if people have an opportunity to uh be oppositional they will Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I, um, that was one of the things that, uh, I liked about your podcast. It felt like conversation. It felt, uh, mm -hmm. it felt like, uh, just two people in a room having a conversation, just discussing a matter, uh, as opposed to a lot of other people at the time, they were just kind of barking at a screen. Although I did like, like watching that as well, <laughs> you know, their view, but it gets a little boring and I, and then I liked the, the back and forth. So it, it really came through on your podcast and still does, of course. Thank you. So Thank I think you. that's, um, it makes it uh, easier for someone that's kind of uh, entering this whole sphere of crazy information to kind of be able to kind of keep up and, and, and know how to kind of communicate or navigate through this mess. Yeah. I, I hope that through a conversation, people, I think it makes it more accessible for a wider range of people. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of the material that I cover is pretty, uh, is, you know, some of it is more academic type material. Yeah. Um, and I think they they could listen to a lecture, mm -hmm. but the benefit of it being conversation is that I think it is much more accessible to a lot of people. Whereas a lecture, there aren't not everybody will read, not everybody will sit through a lecture style course. Absolutely. So, but a lot of people will listen to two people conversing, and especially when those people are bouncing ideas off each other, exactly. they're they're making discoveries along the way as well. So you're you're almost like a fly in the wall getting to be a part of that journey where people are making the discoveries. So, and I think that for learning, that's really powerful. 
Absolutely. And um, speaking of that, uh, you said your your past in terms of like academics. Uh, so you have a strong philosophy background. At least that that's what comes through. And oftentimes you you, you reference that. Uh, mm-hmm. So philosophy and psychology as well. You often kind of you know touch base on both of those subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you get interested in in, in philosophy? Uh, how did what what's uh, captured your attention? So philosophy, uh, my entry to philosophy was probably like really young, like two, three years old. I was fascinated with Greek mythology. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, some of my favorite movies, really cheesy, but like one of my childhood favorite movies was Xanadu. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. but, but it is, uh, I mean, very loosely, it is connected to Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she was a muse. She was the daughter of Zeus and, and, uh, Helen. And, uh, yeah. So, um, sorry, Zeus and Hera. Hera and, yeah. uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was my early kind of foray into philosophy was really through Greek mythology from a very young age. I was reading all the Greek mythology and, uh, that kind of led me into some of the Greek philosophy, the ancient Mm -hmm. philosophy and starting to study that. And I, I studied psychology, um, really young as well, but I'll give you the philosophy journey and then Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they overlap, but not quite. Uh, so philosophy, I continued then to study a lot of the ancient Greeks, um, and then you know from there branched into other areas. But I, I would say even to this day, I'm really fascinated with the ancient Greeks. But my ninth grade, uh, going into high school, the summer reading, like going into ninth grade, was a uh, Brave New World and uh, the Tao of Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> and I combo. remember thinking I was going to love high school. I was like, this is awesome. And uh, yeah, so I, I, my history class had a lot of, I guess the beginning of history was a lot of the philosophical references. And we had to pick a term paper in ninth grade, you know, topic for a term paper. And I picked the pre-Socratic philosophers and I, I wrote uh, my term paper on uh, the pre-Socratic's primordial search for transcendence. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's really actually, it was way more relevant to like everything that I'm investigating now than I would have ever, could have ever known then, you know? Absolutely. Uh, so, and then my sophomore year of high school, I wrote, uh, it was for English class. So again, it was really my own journey, but I was fortunate enough to be in an environment where I was allowed to kind of carve my own paths mm-hmm. and it, it was English class. So certainly it wasn't philosophy, but you, we, in, in that English class, we kind it was kind of like a periphery part of the course where you, I think it was every month you basically did a book report, you know, sophomore year of high school and you, be, and obviously that wasn't like English class, but it was like on top of everything you wrote a book that was part of our and you got to choose so it was kind of like an elective part of the class and I read the trial of Socrates and it really did move me I, I think it shaped a lot of my views and my perspectives and I wrote a paper on that my history teacher from the previous year ended up publishing it I didn't know oh. until I was a senior I had no idea until, yeah, it was really, it was really cool. I, the way I found out was that I was in the the ladies room and someone asked me if I was Courtney Turner (laughs) and I said, yeah, why? He said, I just quoted you. And I said, you did? Why? 
And <laughs> is it because we have to read your paper as our secondary source? Oh, get out of here. That's awesome. And I was like, what paper? <laughs> I mean, I had no idea. I mean, it was a paper I wrote my sophomore year. And I, it, I was that senior at that time. I had no idea he published it. That's so, awesome. It was pretty cool. And then my junior year, I did an independent study on philosophy. I used, uh, I probably have it here. Um, I don't know. I can never see my books, but, oh, it's right here. Uh, I always reference this for for beginners, uh, but it's Sophie's World. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have that that in Canada. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I gave it to my daughter. Did you? Yeah. Did you like it? Uh, she hasn't read it yet. Oh. <laughs> Tell her it's so cute. Yeah. It really is. It's it such is. a cute story. Uh, and so I use that kind of as a guide for, I, I you know, it was a, the year. It was an independent study. And I use that as a guide for kind of like a review of the literature of philosophy. Uh, mm-hmm. That had many other sources that I obviously, but that was kind of the launching pad for uh, that. And then my senior year, I did a, it was, um, what was the name of it? It was, oh, it was a zeitgeist paper. And it was about how uh, the turn of the century uh, philosophers, artists, and uh, and literature reflected um, the, the zeitgeist of the 20th century, which was essentially like a despair. I, I don't remember the title anymore, but it was like, Man's search for meaning, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of a deep dive to a lot of philosophy as well. And then I ended up majoring in philosophy. But the psychology journey was slightly different. Uh, and I do think they overlap because I started to realize, obviously, philosophy is the father of psychology. It's the father of all science, really, uh, in its you know more authentic form. I, yeah. I, I, both of us have done research that will indicate there's been a lot of artificial creation of science, both science and I would argue hard science and uh, uh, oh, yeah. social science, certainly. Um, not to say that there isn't hard science that, in, that exists outside of the uh, framework of what has been, uh, you know, systematized. But, but my psychology journey was because my mom went back to school when I was about six years old. And, you know, I was very, very close to my mom because I was sick. I was in and out of hospitals most of my childhood. So I spent a lot of time with her. And, you know, she's still, we're still very close. And she, <laughs> I, I tell the story, she, she said to me she was bored. And I really remember, I remember it really well. And she said she was bored. It was dusk. We were outside on the deck. And normally when she was bored, we went to Bloomingdale's. But my mom doesn't really like to drive at night. So I knew we weren't going to Bloomingdale's and I knew she meant more existentially. I, I don't think I knew that term at the time, you know, six. And I, I don't think I necessarily knew, uh, you know, I might not have had the, you know, the cognitive reference for it, but I definitely knew that she meant something bigger. And I said, well, you know, what do you want to do? And she said that she was thinking about going back to school. And she asked me how I felt about it. And I said that I didn't really want her to because, you know, essentially I was going to miss her. And that, uh, but I felt that, you know, she should do it because she needs, she should do it for her. Absolutely. And she did. And I did feel like I lost her. You know, she was my best friend. I spent all this time with her and she didn't have the same amount of time for me anymore. So I started to read Freud when I was like nine. And okay. uh, I, really basically was just reading whatever I could so that I would 
you know, I read psychology today and then I would want to talk to her about it. I'm like, we can discuss your work, your, your schoolwork. And, uh, yeah. So that was kind of how I started studying psychology. And then in high school, I wrote two 85 page theses. Well, one year it was 80, the other was 85, um, on dream analysis. Uh-huh. So yeah. we had, a, I, my school was, I was, as I mentioned, I was very fortunate. The school gave me a lot of latitude with, uh, being able to do independent research. And I took a lot of that initiative to be able to do it because I just really prefer doing that to, you know, the, you know, straight and narrow stuff they gave us. So, of course, uh, good, good for you. Good for you. Yeah. So, I had presented, they had something called a focus project, which was essentially a dissertation format where first semester you do a review of the literature, second semester you do field study, and then you present before a panel and you defend your, your thesis. So, mm-hmm. I had presented this idea because I was going to do a summer research project when I started to realize how much work it was going to be. I was like, I kind of want to get some credit for this and presented it to my principal. And uh, they said, well, you know, we really would have to have somebody from the school overseeing it that, you know, having an outside uh, psychotherapist was not or licensed therapist would not be sufficient for me to get credit. And then we kind of brainstormed together for a while. And he came up with this idea of my doing a focus project as a junior. So I was the first junior in my school to do a what was called the focus project. And it was on dream analysis. And my focus was on, it ended up being my first year was uh, problem solving dreams. The second year was creativity and dreams. And the research that I had actually presented was, uh, I presented it to Columbia Presbyterian and they laughed in my face. You know, I was 15 years old and they told me that you need a, it was a human brain study and you need an MD, PhD to conduct the study. And they said, but if you did, you would mo- it most likely would get a, a Nobel Prize because it would probably be statistically significant. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, well, then that's what I'll do. <laughs> Don't bother because by the time you graduate, you know, we'll have already conducted the study. And I, I remember, of course, at the time, I think it probably, I know my mom thought it was really flattering. I probably thought, like, I decided, well, that's going to be my path. I'm going to go, you know, major in neuroscience and I'm going to get my MD, PhD and uh, we'll conduct this study and, you know, I'll live happily ever after. You know, that was the plan. <laughs> um, but in hindsight, knowing what I know now, I think it was actually really ludicrous because it was basically just gatekeeping. There's no reason why. I couldn't conduct that study. I wasn't going to slice people's brains. You know, Bill Gates doesn't even have a college degree and he certainly doesn't know how to code software. And he's like, right. He's an expert (laughs) though. He's an expert. He doesn't have an MD either. And he's not an expert. He's an expert. Right. right? Yeah, exactly. So um, somehow he's the medical expert and he, he doesn't even have a college degree. So, I mean, that's just, you know, a pretty extreme example, but I think it proves, you know, it, it alludes to my point because I do really think it's a, it's a way of gatekeeping because why Absolutely. couldn't I have overseen the project? I yep. could have, it was my hypothesis and the professionals who were skilled and trained would have conducted the study. And certainly when I graduated, I did, I worked, uh, you know, as research assistant, uh, in Columbia Presbyterian and I, that's exactly what we did. You know, somebody had a hypothesis, it gets tested yep. and you have all yep. these people working in the labs who are working directly. Um, the person who's overseeing it doesn't necessarily, I mean, in some cases they do, but in some cases they don't. So it, 
It was, it was, it's interesting just, you know, in hindsight, what you, how perspective shifts and, uh, what you knowing if you knew then what, you know, you know, at the time now. So, but, uh, but that was initially the plan. So I wrote these two theses on dream analysis. My mentor was the founder of the association for the study of dreams. Uh, I got certified in her method. It was the dream interview method. Um, yep. And so, yeah, I'm so I, I wrote those. I presented my uh, just my thesis before a panel of mostly, you know, some were neuropsychiatrists, some were psychiatrists, um, both years. And uh, in college, I was given a grant to do research on dreams and literature. Oh, get out. So, cool. So I, I did some work on that. and uh, But I ultimately ended up majoring in philosophy. So... That was a very long-winded, but yeah, that's kind of my journey into, yeah. No, it, it, it makes like, a lot of sense hearing it because uh, the, it really comes through on, uh, when you have conversations and your discussions and, and you, you really uh, do keep up with some heavy hitters when, when you're conversing with them. And I'm like, okay, this is, so that's why I was interested in hearing your backstory on philosophy and psychology because uh, actually you made a couple of comments uh, on different episodes that made me mm -hmm. really rethink things. Um, and a lot of... Um, this, the conversations that you've been recently having about 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 Plato, like my background's mm -hmm. Greek, so of course mm -hmm. uh, in, in a Greek household, and my father loved books, and uh, there was always like a lot of uh, conversations about uh, Pythagoras and Socrates and Plato and blah blah blah. But I was sure. getting it from a perspective of a from a from a Greek perspective and um, from a father perspective who was trying to push nationalism on me. So. Mm -hmm. uh, not in a bad way. I mean, I mean, sure, not in, sure. a, in a very good way, but uh, we, we were kind of more learning about uh, these individuals almost as if they're supposed to be our, like, our heroes rather than actually right. kind of uh, deconstructing and thinking through their thoughts and what do they actually mean. Uh, right. And it's only recent that I've come and actually your podcast has been very helpful and uh, kind of rethinking how I'm viewing uh, uh, Plato. I mean, early on, I kind of noticed a couple of things that made me go, huh? But I didn't really like... Uh, spent a lot of time thinking about it. And um, so let's, let's kind of go there. So yeah. recently you've been doing a lot of, uh, a, a lot of uh, podcasts about that, about Plato, his connection to, um, well, to where we are today, almost as if he yeah. was kind of putting out the blueprint for uh, the new world order. And, and Jay's talked a lot about it as well as, as, as James and, uh, uh, and a bunch of your other guests. So from your perspective, at what point did you kind of see Plato in that light, in the light of like, he might've been the archetype of this all. So what's super fascinating to me, I don't know if it's fascinating to anybody else, but I'll share it with you. Um, but just reflecting on my own journey, uh, through the, you know, the intellectual material is that, so I majored in uh, philosophy and I wrote my thesis on existential authenticity. So mm -hmm. I really came from, I was fascinated with the existentialist and uh, I really was, I, it's ironic to me looking because I had such a inverted perspective, I think. And I do think a lot of that was clouded by how it was presented to me, by how mm -hmm. it was taught. So yes. in the psychology classes, I really noticed pretty immediately how overwrought the field was with Marxism. It was just, yep. it seemed like a, a Marxist indoctrination. But philosophy in my philosophy classes it absolutely was and I couldn't put my finger on it at the time but uh, I I knew that there was some sort of kind of a disconnect because when I was trying when I initially presented my thesis I presented it to the it, they, they first tried to cut like half of it down they were like you can't do that much you can't compare that many uh, philosophers just too ambitious and 
my advisor just really was not interested at all in my material. And I kept talking to the head of the department and I knew the head of the department and I did not, were not aligned. And, you know, I, again, back then I looked at things much more, uh, mainstream politically. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at political views and I was like, I knew that we weren't aligned in that regard at all, but I, but he was so brilliant that the head of my department and he was so engaging, like he would push back and we would have a real discourse. And right. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. My personal advisor, my direct thesis advisor was not at all. And I knew we really, like he was obsessed with Foucault. <laughs> and even then when I just didn't really know a whole lot, I just thought he was kind of boring to be honest. And now yeah. in hindsight, you know, he did predict some of the, uh, scientism and the uh you know biological medical tyranny that we would that would come down the pike and in that regard i think he did do some uh decent mourning but a lot of it would just he thought it was so profound and i just really he he taught like four courses on it and i i just really didn't it was just beyond me i just really couldn't fathom why this was even interesting and i thought it was actually kind of destructive philosophy yeah so i uh, I, sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent, but the reason I bring it up is because I now, knowing what I know, uh, the existentialists were just a rebranding of Marxism. Yep. And yep. the more I started to study Marxism, I could not escape the fact that it was essentially satanic. Mm -hmm. I mean, Marx himself yep. wrote Ode to Satan, and yep. the the it is about inversion and distortion, deception, and uh, manipulation. So... Uh, and of course, destruction, chaos, all all of that. And I, but it, it's really interesting how, you know, back then I saw it so differently and I had, you know, I was definitely not uh, a Marxist and mm -hmm. I, in the psychology realm, I, I noticed it very quickly and I, I was, you know, turned off by that. But in the philosophy, I actually gravitated right towards the things that were essentially that and I was deceived. So when you bring up Plato, I think I initially, and again, because I came at things from very much this, uh, you know, to, like the Republican Democrat kind of a, a mindset, I had initially seen Plato as the, uh, you know, regenerator of uh, the communist model. And yeah. uh, the Republic was kind of the, uh, yeah, essentially the communist model. And that was initially how I saw Plato. And so that lens, I think, clouded a lot of my perspectives on his teachings and his writings. And now I have a much deeper, I mean, I have a lot more to uncover. I certainly, I don't think I'm anywhere near being able to make it. I don't know. I ever will make any kind of conclusive, uh, you know, stances, but I, I see it a little bit more nuanced because I do think he was working through a lot uh, and I think mm -hmm. that yep. that's as most philosophers, you're watching, we're reading it in hindsight as if it's been packaged in a nice little bow, right. but right. all right. of us are on a journey, right? Yep. So, I mean, any writer, if you read their earliest works and then you read their later works, they're, hopefully if there are any kind of thinking, authentic beings, there, there will be some sort of transition. There will be some sort of a evolution. 
uh, and discoveries they make along the way, and they may change their perspective. So I think a lot of what we're watching when we read through Plato is him actually working through things, as I think is true with most philosophers, except for some of them who have a clear intentional agenda, and some of them do. But with Plato, I'm a little conflicted because I, I think the biggest struggle I'm I'm dealing with right oh, now no. is I, all right. So I think what I, where I was at was I was just saying that one of the biggest struggles I'm having with uh, Plato currently is you know I've been re- I've been reading his uh, like how he references the mystery schools mm-hmm. and yep. you know of course his creation of the academy and my big struggle is did. He because he talks about the philosopher kings and how they should rule. So yep. was he creating the the academy to create a you know upper class ruling class of philosophy kings, or was he trying to teach the masses? And I think there's a the, I t- talked to Matt Eret about this, and yes, I think there really one. is a there's a valid argument to be made. I think on both sides, but yep, for sure. It's something I really struggle with. I, I don't know. Because the other thing I struggle with is so much of the Greeks where it was based on uh, ancient Egyptian mystic uh, philosophies, time. right? And I think my initial kind of bias was that, well, then it's bad, right? But I, I think that that's incorrect. I think that esoteric knowledge in itself is neutral. And Absolutely. I think that it's the fact that it's been occulted that makes it bad because that enables it to be a controlling mechanism, a means of controlling the masses. Actually, that's so exactly not, where I'm at. Yeah, it's not the nature of the esoteric knowledge itself. It's the 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 fact that they're withholding it from the masses. Well, that's funny that you mentioned that because before we got on air and we were talking about a little bit off air on, on, in this book, the the secret source. Literally, at the end of the book, that's exactly what's described. It's described as a, a form of like, basically, it's it's like once you figure out how to uh, use the occult in your mm-hmm. favor, what we would call today like manifestation or this or that or kind of controlling um, how you um, yeah how you manifest stuff. Then, therefore, you're in control of whomever you're discussing with, or however you're dealing with it. So basically, it's saying either we brainwash you, or you, bra- or sorry, we mind control you, or you mind control yourself. That's kind of the end of right. this book and what it's what it's referring to exactly what you just said. So it's not really the occult; it's how you apply it. So that's why, like some of the uh, the techniques that are described in mm-hmm. uh, in uh, a lot of the new age, let's call it, or new thought, uh, a lot of the mm-hmm. techniques that are described can be used for good or can be used for evil. So yeah. I think uh, it, that point that you're just making right there is a pivotal point. And you, so like, for example, like Napoleon Hill's Thinking Grow Rich, those techniques do uh, do work. Uh, uh, sure. But can you, do you use them for Sacred good? Do you use them for geometry bad? Geometry is very real. I mean. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But it, yeah, it is. It, it, I think the, the question then becomes whose hands, in whose hands does it fall? What do they do with it? Right, exactly. And how accessible is it? Does it become to others? I think this is where we see uh, the manipulation of education and why that has become such a mechanism for controlling the masses. Because things like Common Core, if you like, yep. Plato said you had yep. to learn all of the the quadrivium. You know, you have yep. to learn basic math and geometry. And right, didn't he have like a plaque that says a uh, 
unless if you are not, a, I'm going to butcher it, paraphrase, but like, I mean, it's English anyway, so it would be paraphrased anyway, but something to the effect of if you're not a geometer, you cannot come past the store. And, uh, you know, so you had to know uh, geometry and mathematics and uh, grammar, rhetoric, logic, you know, basic foundational teachings before you could enter into the realms of things like political science. And yeah, whereas today it's very much the opposite. They teach you these very obscure types of really made up kinds of schools of thought. And I, I, I mean that they are kind of just made up things like queer study is a made up field. And And it's, and it's a, you know, it's not predicated on anything that is uh, rooted in anything. And they make these things up, but then they omit or they distort basic teachings like common core math instead of teaching, you know, traditional math. And it is because if you don't have that foundation, then how can you, how can you be equipped to then do higher advanced learning? And then you are much more susceptible to being controlled. Yeah, that even fits into what you're discussing about uh, Marxism and the Frankfurter mm-hmm. School in general, where basically everything can be objective, and there is no 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 subjective truth. Uh, sorry, subjective. Not nothing's objective. Right. At that right. point, you can kind of mix and match things and slide what is real, what isn't real. What what if it's real? And I remember having a conversation with someone telling me uh, that there's no such things as truth, and I asked them, "Is that statement true?" And in that one second, that person's argument completely. I mean, it's a simple argument, but it really shows how you can just shift someone's opinion really quickly if you have not right. no solid ground to stand on yes yeah, so without the absolutely. backing of all of logic and all that you can't actually uh think your way through life you can't your perspective is in someone else's hands it goes back to mind control yes yeah so yeah so i mean that's kind of where i'm at with uh plato i also think it's interesting just the what you learn in school versus how many of his works are He's written, you know. Yeah, like a lot of the ones that are very uh, popularized, I think, actually kind of indicate a lot l- less of what is interesting and relevant. But agreed, agreed for sure. Yeah. So, um, it's probably a good opportunity to kind of slide into uh, to John Coleman. It's kind of like. Sure. Um, not that it's, I mean, it does fit the conversation. It is about psychology. Mm-hmm. It is about mind control, of course. Well, that's what the, the Tavistock Institute <laughs> is all about. But uh, how did you come into contact with John Coleman's work specifically? So I had a friend who sent me a video years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I it, maybe it was in 2020. I'm trying to think. But he sent me a video of, and it's like one of the few videos you can find of him talking about, uh, you know, the committee of 300 and, uh, it's one of his longer speeches. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen this, read this video and he sent me this video and I was really enthralled. Like I watched it a few times and I tried to find other information on him and I stumbled on, you know, started finding some of his books and then I found this, uh, Tavistock book Uh and, oh yeah. Yeah, and then I, I I read that one three times in a week, and yeah, the that that sent me down quite the the rabbit hole. And I think just with the the background in psychology, it, I was really I really gravitated towards this notion of social engineering 
you know, and a, a lot of these techniques, and it, this is why I say very, the philosophy of psychology is very intertwined. You know, the, the techniques that they use, like come, they talk about the philosophy, the ancient philosophers talk about this and it comes from the ancient mys mystics, you know, yep. things like hypnosis. And mm -hmm. that's, those are techniques that the, the psychologists then used for therapy, research, and also mind control. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I was actually a hypnotherapist, one of my first jobs when I graduated from college, but I quit because I couldn't be hypnotized. <laughs> and so I felt like a fraud. Um, but yeah, so I, I think, yeah, um, I, but I was able to help people. So, you know, it definitely has a place, as you were saying, Absolutely. you know, it can be used for good or not. So um, there were, it was mostly for like habit formation. So there are people who were, uh, working on things like quitting smoking and right, like that kind of thing. And I was definitely able to see some very positive results using it, but I just personally couldn't be hypnotized. So I felt like a fraud doing it, but yeah. So I, all this just to say that, that I think that's part of why I gravitated so much towards uh, that work because it was the it was a very dark side of a field that I had spent so much of my life immersed in studying. So, well, uh, so as as you, because a lot of your interests kind of fit with like there, it, that one book kind of puts together your your background with philosophy, your background mm -hmm. and interest in, in in psychology, and and uh, a lot of the names you've mentioned are all in the book. Like they, he often like talks about the Frankfurter School and Marxism and all that stuff. So as you started to kind of dive deeper in the world of John Coleman, how did that change your worldview? Because uh, you said in the beginning you're kind of more about uh, you believe that you can like vote your way out of this problem and you know vote harder. It's okay, everything will be fine. <laughs> vote harder. Yeah, it works every time. You know every I mean? time. <laughs> so how did you go from like that to like reading that book and then kind of I would imagine you're walking around kind of looking at life in a completely different perspective and how marketing fits into it and why is it that you like this song or why is it that you pick this shirt and like these little things that you think are your choice you start to read that book or you start to go down the subject of what is social engineering what is mind control what is hypnosis and how is it applied you start to realize that oh a lot of the decisions and choices I've made through my life are not actually mine I was I was nudged in that direction like Cast or, or rather than looking at it like quite so personally, like I was victimized and hypnotized. I don't know that I saw it that way, but what I definitely did start to see is that I think I always had this uh, notion of culture being organic, mm -hmm, culture yeah. creation. Yeah. And I think that's where the social engineering really opened my eyes to uh, the puppeteers who are creating culture mm -hmm. and what their agenda behind that culture creation might be. So I think that was a really big perspective shift for me. I when you talk about like the the vote harder kind of uh, concept, I I was very politically minded from a very young age. You know, I started a board for school choice when I was in sixth grade, and uh, you know, so that that like shows you how invested I I've been for a lot of my life. My dad was a I, I don't think I would have known this at the time, but, you know, in hindsight, he was very much a neocon, but I thought he was, uh -huh, just, yeah. you know, like a hardcore Republican conservative and, but he was definitely very much a neocon. And my dad and I connected very much over politics. That was something we talked about a lot. So I think I felt like a lot of my, you know, this is what I, I, I talk about a lot when people 
have a hard time wrapping their heads around things like the secret societies and how the intelligence agencies and apparatus works. And what I try to explain to people is that you can have all these machinations, but honestly, what drives most people is interpersonal relationships. Yes. And that's that's part of why uh, so much of this is predicated on trauma-based mind control, on blackmail. That's how they leverage power. Because mm-hmm. that's how, because humans are, are social beings and our interpersonal relationships are often what drive us. And so for me personally, because that was one of my connections to my dad, I was very defensive of that stance. And I had had a lot of people as, who planted seeds, certainly in my uh, you know early adult years. And I discredited them because my dad kept telling me that they were absolutely crazy, nonsense talkers, and you know, not to listen to them. But what I am grateful for is that, and it was very illuminating for me because I now know this when, when doing my podcast, when talking to people who may not be awake, that those seeds do have power and yes. they can grow. And that is really what happened for me because I don't know that if. I had a bit of like a moment of kind of starting to wake and wake up. It was like, you know, a big seed was planted around 2011 when I was writing for Politichicks and I started doing a deep dive into the Frankfurt School. Yeah. And it was the first time because most of my life I grew up in a sea of leftists. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I grew up right outside New York City and then I was a, uh, you know, then I lived in Manhattan for years and then I was in LA, I was in the entertainment industry, I was in the fitness industry. It was a very leftist milieu. Mm -hmm. And so it was just at some point much easier to say, you know, I'm socially uh, liberal, but fiscally conservative. That was kind of like my, my go-to line because it was much more palatable for a lot of people and in that leftist milieu. But when I started diving into the Frankfurt School, that was when I really had that eye-opening moment of realizing that you can't extricate one from the other and that they're inexorably intertwined. And so uh, that was a big, a big paradigm shift for me. And I think at that point, you know, I became much more openly conservative in my views. But when 2020 hit, and certainly when I uh, stumbled upon uh, Dr. John Coleman's work, that's really when I started to uh, foray into the world of potential conspiracies. And Absolutely. it was really because I had all those seeds had been planted, and I was able to start connecting dots. Like I, I remembered hearing things about, you know, this data point, this data point. And all of a sudden, when I read that book, all of it really converged for me. Me too. And I started to realize there is a bigger agenda behind what's going on and that it is not just the, you know, that we're not going to solve this just by voting harder. Absolutely. And and uh, see, I had a similar sort of um, situation with me when I started, because I ran, in, um, I, th- I think it was about 2009 or so when I'd heard about uh, the the Tavistock book, because like it, in uh, early conspiracy, whatever you want to call it, uh, back in the day, um people started talking more and more about John Coleman around 2005, but it was kind of mm-hmm. like in the background. I, I, I heard his name and I'm like, okay, yeah, community yeah. 300. I, I remember looking at all those charts with all the, all the companies and then, you know, like the 13, the council yeah. of 13 and all that. And I, and at that time I didn't really know what to make of a lot of the stuff that I was looking into. Um, I was definitely going down the rabbit hole, but I didn't focus on, uh, on his work at all. And uh, when I finally sat down with 
the book. Uh, actually, the book that I showed you earlier, uh, a friend of mine gifted it to me before I left Canada because he he, uh-huh. uh, he knew I was like really um, I was really interested in the subject and I was going to start going deep down this. And I had told him I'd been putting this off for a while. Like I knew there was something in there that's going to disturb everything that I believe. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, with the Frankfurter School, I remember like uh, hearing uh, Cass Silverstein, uh, Silverstein talking about nudge theory and and how like you could nudge populations into making decisions and this and that, like behavioral psychology mm-hmm. and how he was connected to all of those uh, behavioral psychologists and, you know, uh, the connected to the postmodernists and so on and so forth and going further back to, to the Frankfurter School. But uh, and I just kept thinking to myself, this sounds very similar to how MK Ultra is described. Uh, this sounds very similar to like um, the first Earth Battalion, which was like a, 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 where they were trying to make Psy soldiers in the '60s, and and like uh, Frank Zappa and all the stuff that was going on in Laurel Canyon. And I yeah. just didn't really think that it was all that connected. And I started right. reading the book, and I'm like, good God. This is all one plan that just looks like many, 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 many plans, but it's one plan. So it's, it's pretty one trippy. Plan, but there are many players and the web yeah. is very intricate. And yes. I do think people have, uh, you know, altering, uh, you know, multipolar uh, initiatives within it. It's just Absolutely. that, you know, they, they tend to align because the overall worldview is very much aligned. Absolutely. Yeah. It's um, it's it's quite the quite the book, and uh, he was quite mm-hmm. the character, and he just seems to be quite the mystery. Because even looking into him, like trying to find out his backstory, or Dr. Uh, John uh, Coleman, yeah, John Coleman. And, oh, and- I have dug. I mean, I have many of his books. I have yeah. I've found many of his interviews. Some of them I could only find like bootleg audio uh, type interviews. There's no uh, there's no recording, at least that I can find, of how he died or when exactly he died. Right. I, I can't seem to find any record of that anywhere. Uh, Me neither. Yeah. And he he was MI6. Mm-hmm. So a lot of his writing is done from memory because, you know, when you go into, as intelligence, you have access to uh, libraries that the masses don't. and But you're, you can only take notes. And then even your notes can be redacted. So, uh, good. So I'm not sure where I cut off, but I was saying that uh, he's going off memory. Um, because yeah, because yeah. he's has a, he was MI6, and so he had access to the libraries uh, that the masses don't. And mm-hmm. so he, but when you're in those libraries, you can only take notes. But even yep. those notes get approved and then are often redacted. So I, I was just saying that because he goes off memory, uh, I think that fascinating but i also take it with a grain of salt because yes. you know everybody's memory is you know valuable at some point so i uh, you know you definitely and people people's memory is going to be clouded by their biases so i do take that with a grain of salt but he was clearly brilliant and clearly a wealth of information and definitely opened my eyes to a web that I just I really was not very familiar previously so and Tavistock is something I knew nothing about so yeah I'd never heard of Tavistock before Dr. John Coleman so well you make a good point there about uh about Coleman having to go off um off his memory and all that because oftentimes he's criticized for a lot of the a, a lot of that and like where's yeah. your sources and all that stuff and uh Eustace Mullins uh criticizes him and um Lin- uh, Lyndon LaRouche uh they, they both of those guys kind of like 
claim that he plagiarized from him. But the, how I feel when I hear that often, because you, you kind of hear that a lot in the conspiracy, conspiracy world quite often, the way I kind of approach it now is kind of like, listen, if whatever they wrote about or they're, they're saying comes to, comes to pass and it kind of seems to be mm-hmm. accurate, take it, like you said, with a grain of salt, and, but kind of like uh, go through the material and see, well, he makes a statement. Can you see it in the real world? Can you see the outcome like, of what he said was going to happen? Right. And one thing about John Coleman, which is why I, I tend to defend him, uh, because I've had this debate, this, this uh, oftentimes people will disagree with his point of view, is like, well, listen, he said this and this, and that's exactly what I see in front of me. So whether he was... Uh, He's been right about a lot. A He's lot. Been, yeah, a lot. A he lot. was right about a lot. So, yeah. you know, I agree. Absolutely. That's and that a, video that you're referring to, that interview, uh, the, just the way he comes across, I mean, he might be a great actor, but he just seems so sincere and he seems yeah. uh, so caring. And it kind of feels almost like a like an uncle trying to like help you out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I've heard many interviews with him and some of them were, it must have been towards the end of his life. And, you yeah. know, yeah, he did have kind of like a old grandpa kind of, uh, a feel to his voice Definitely. at that point. But yeah, I, I think he was a, a great source of information and definitely talking about things that were not, you know, discussed by that many people, but Tavistock in particular really w- was just kind of riveting, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And too. when you start diving into Tavistock, I mean, it was like the, it's like the mother of all think tanks. I mean, they, it's almost like they, uh, you know, the origins of social engineering, I mean, not the origins, because they, they pre, certainly predates uh, uh, Tavistock's uh, formal uh, inception, but I definitely as a organization, they were largely instrumental for the past hundred years. Absolutely, because like now that I'm going through his book and uh, Daniel Esselin's book and, and a few other documents that I've collected, some of which I've collected over the years, uh, and I'm kind of actually going through all of it, I'm starting to yeah. see like the subject of Tavistock is a good springboard for like many subjects exactly. in, in the quote unquote conspiracy world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether it be who's controlling, even back to the ancient past, because you can start uh, connecting, um, you know, the, the, the Venetians and, and, uh, and, and like the Royal families, and you can just keep going back right even to like Templars. So there, yep. there is like, there is a direct line going backwards and there's definitely a line going forwards. Sure. And then as you keep reading the book, as I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here, you start to realize how much, uh, their work, if you want to call it that at Tavistock has affected all of our lives. I mean, clearly we're living it right now. Like we're living oh, yeah. the shock you know, huge, of, of it all. huge impact. Yeah, the the trauma-based mind control, and I do think that yeah. that a lot of their research was the, uh, um, I, I guess the uh, it created the blueprint for MK Ultra. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, there's a direct line between their work and MKUltra, most certainly. And even if you look at it from like the educational standpoint and SRI, and like right now, I'm, I'm as you know, I'm I'm doing a deeper dive than I had in the past on changing images of man. And like that document, actually, that's the document that really got me, uh, like shook me. It shook me. Uh, I, I gave a little it's, talk. It's shaking. <laughs> it's, oh, it's so dark. Oh my God. And it's so many of the individuals that are in the quote unquote uh, new age world either reference many of the individuals in that book or people that were behind the book or directly right. are influenced from them. Like, you know, uh, and, and 
you know, I don't want to reveal too much because I want to start kind of like uh, yeah. you know, presenting about that. But the, the thing about that that uh, document, and actually Daniel Eshelin, when he starts his book, he starts, uh, of Tavistock, uh, he starts mm-hmm. with referencing uh, the two documents, uh, Changing Images of Man and uh, the Aquarian the Conspiracy. Yeah. And you really see it. And I, I mean, um, not to go off on a tangent, but I recall back in the day uh, for the early conspiracy theorists, uh, uh, there was like the whole 2012 stuff. And but before that, in the late 90s, there was the whole uh, Y2K, the whole Y2K oh, yeah. scare. So now I, re- I look back because I'm old enough to remember like that, the, the shock of all of that, the possibility. Oh, my God, Y2K. I look back mm-hmm. reading Tavistock and I'm like, oh, my God, this is like they're writing how they came up with this idea of all these these bizarre moments in our history where they're going to scare the crap out of us so when it, when it was like 2012 when i started looking back at like uh, you know the mayan calendar and the end of the world and all that kind of stuff uh, right. when i look at it from through the lens of of those documents i could see clearly that it was completely engineered like the, the shock value of it not there i mean sure. there are some things about that subject that are true-ish but just the way it was presented to the public is what i mean like yeah. how that subject was pre- presented to the public uh it really turned people's minds on and off sure and it, it, it's it's pretty uh remarkable how uh easily molded we are if we're not in control of how we view things yeah absolutely well it's not so much if we're it- yeah, I mean, in control of how we view things, but I think it's really if we don't have the critical thinking capacity. So if we Absolutely. don't have the ability to ask the questions and the the foundation to be able to uh, to ask important questions and valuable questions, you know, it's not just the questions; it's uh, what kind of questions are you asking? And that's since, right. And that's why there is the overlap with the uh, psychology and education. And the education system has been uh, geared towards obedience and compliance rather than towards critical thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Because like you build your perspective on how you logically think through things and, and how you perceive the world is based on the questions you asked. Exactly like you said, because the talk that I gave earlier this this uh, last year, uh, I started off by a, a quote that I often use to remind myself or to keep me grounded, uh, which is the right answer to the r- mm-hmm. wrong question remains a wrong answer ask better questions and like really focus on the question mm-hmm. and that that kind of got me through i guess i can't say i'm out of it but the beginnings mm-hmm. of rethinking how i'm seeing things is that one quote it's kind of giving me perspective or it's helping me keep my some solid hey. you know what i mean because it gets shaky it gets shaky out there with all this craziness going on man it's nuts totally totally so um, I wanted to ask you a few more questions before we tie this up, because I, yeah. I know we're probably going to have some more uh, conversations down the, down yeah, the road. Sure. Um, so from your uh, perspective, uh, where do you take where do you want your research to go in this whole Tavistock thing that, uh, that for me, it's more about like a new age deception. Yeah, um, I want to do a deep dive on that from uh, where it begins and the psychology of it. Mm-hmm. And for you, what, what what interests you on the whole subject of the Yeah, and I think that, that that end of it is fascinating because I think that that very much has a, a Luciferian uh, mm-hmm. angle and, and, and origin. Um, and I, I mean, where I would want to go, I think obviously, I think it does as well. But I think really I'd like to, uh, I'm interested in kind of the origin of social science mm-hmm. and uh, the manipulation of social science fields because I think it's really been deceptively presented as a science 
Yes. And it's really not a science. Yes. And it, it is, I, and I, I will qualify this by saying that, you know, I'm not suggesting that psychology has never helped anyone or that nobody has ever benefited from talk therapy or, or even from, uh, you know, psychiatry. But I really do feel that the field of psychology, the more I dive into it, was created as a secular solution to spiritual problems. And that is a means of, uh, you know, certainly funneling patients to be uh, pharmaceutical, um, you know, uh, clients forever, <laughs> perpetual yep. pharmaceutical clients for the field of psychiatry. But I also think that it really, uh, it shapes the culture because people are no longer, they're atomized. I mean, think about it when you're in a therapist's office, you're you're siloed by yourself with the therapist. Yep. You basically turn over your power. I mean, think about hypnosis as an example. You're practically unconscious and the therapist has all this power. You know, I know there are certain fields of psychology where uh, they have endowed more power to the patient. But a lot of it, I mean, like regression therapy, There, there's so many uh, types of therapies where the therapist can actually do a lot of damage and program their patient. Absolutely. And it's, you're separated from other people and that's, that can make you feel worse. That's, you know, we know that as social beings, we, that we saw that with the, uh, you know, social distancing and people locking down and how depressed and anxious do people become. Right. So I think that where is there used to be, I'm not saying there aren't problems with religious institutions, of course, you know, uh, that that'd be a whole other conversation. But at least the notion of having, uh, you know, these conversations where you're dealing with, uh, you know, whether it be a priest, a rabbi, a, you know, whoever your uh, spiritual uh, guidance, guidance is. And of course, you know, com confession can be done in privacy, but then you have a community. Right. Then yeah. a lot of these things are worked through and talked through a lot of, uh, you know, the, there's a, a deference to the elders and it's just it, it changes the whole structure of society. Now, when you have this field where all this power is entrusted to the experts. Absolutely. Yep. Instead of community, instead of family, instead of elders who you respect and know. So I. I I could go on and on about it, but I just think that it is a really a bigger part of a much more sinister uh, plan to social. And then, of course, all the trauma based mind control, you know, and then, then what leading up to MK Ultra, which, you know, was not just uh, a tragic occurrence on the individuals who were afflicted, but also really kind of a, a beta test for a lot of mass scale trauma based mind control. And I think a lot of that is still going on today, whether it's, you know, under the name of MK Ultra or not is kind of irrelevant. Yeah, absolutely. And and you can kind of see the outcome of, of those early experiments, even if you look at it from the Vietnam War, the experiments that mm -hmm. they did on uh, on soldiers there, whatever, you kind of mm -hmm. see them, they're kind of doing a lot of the stuff to us in a, in a bizarre sort of way. This has uh, been a long drawn out plan of theirs. Uh, and when you look at the the funding entities behind it, I mean, it's all yes. the same people. I yes. mean, it's, it's the Rockefellers, yes. the Rothschilds, yes. the Milners, the, yes. you know, the the Crown. It, 
it's always the same group. So yeah, even like this, the you know having uh, Sigmund Freud and then Bernays, his nephew, and then you have uh, was his Mark uh, Bernays Rudolph uh, who owns uh, Netflix. Netflix. And, and all of a sudden, you, you're like, this can't be a coincidence here. You know, that's pretty interesting that you're all literally uh, describing the same form of uh, techniques to to change people's opinions and shift their their ways and and like culture create and create uh, whatever society you want uh how does the luciferian stuff fit into that for you like how do you see that because uh, that's something that a lot of people talk about like it's i mean especially with the what just happened uh, at the super bowl and all the other stuff mm. that's happened in the last little while right. um, in, in your perspective how do you view that because uh, you oftentimes you hear about like satanists and luciferians and and people kind of make this very cartoon uh like you know what i mean like they they, they, they really yeah. play it up how do you see it how do you how do you view this well, I, I, I think it's multifaceted, but some of the teachings are literally derived from more Luciferian type of uh, teachings and views. So, mm -hmm. you know, like Carl Jung was a, a mystic, right? Yep. Uh, he, arguably, he was a part of the occultic world and Absolutely. his view was very Luciferian. He's mm -hmm. just one example. I mean, I think we could go through so many of them, but I think he's a great example because he's known as such a, you know, forerunner in the field. But, you know, when you think about his collective unconscious, isn't yes. that kind of a, like a, homo a homage to the monad, right? And the demiurge. Yes. Right. Uh, and we're we're all one. And yep. And I, I think there is this uh, polarity, and I think this is just what's so hard for humans to reconcile, but it, I, it is the one and the many. But if you have a more biblical type of worldview, and, and that doesn't mean you have to be a religious person to grasp this. I'm just saying that that, that framework does tend to lend itself to, you know, there is the one and the many. There mm -hmm. is, it, it's both. We are very much individuals, and we have individual purpose and uh, you know, consequences and choices. We have free will, and yet everything is interconnected. And I think, uh, you know, certainly science and just even empirical experience uh, points in that direction. Absolutely. But, right. But I think their worldview is very much about, uh, you know, as I said, that I think that's just one example, and it comes from a very new agey, which is a Luciferian. It's kind of a, a popular popularized branding of a Luciferian uh, worldview. So Absolutely. I think that's one way. I think another way is that you're, you're opting out of the religious uh, viewpoints. So again, it's not that you have to uh, be a religious person, but now this is taking you outside of that framework into a more secular framework. And now you're, Again, worshiping man, right? Who who's now yep. going to save yep. you? Is it's a it's man, and that again, I think, is a very gnostic, Luciferian uh, viewpoint. But it's done in a deceptive way, where you're you're becoming enlightened, and I think that's a lot of the the path for a lot of these psychologists, certainly in the earlier years. And uh, and then there's also just all this very perverted kind of stuff. <laughs> You know, from like Eric Fromm and Herbert Marcuse and yes, Freud yes. for sure. Um, and it, it does seem like uh, very reminiscent of a lot of the occultic kind of uh, perverse worshiping and rituals. So, 
Well, absolutely. Yeah. You make a lot of great points there, actually. Uh, yeah, going back to Carl Jung, um, that was like how I entered the whole world of, uh, of Hermeticism, actually, because mm-hmm. if you look at his catalog, he's got quite a few books on the occult, and he has a book called Hermeticism, mm-hmm. and the whole idea of uh, ar- um, archetypes is pretty much the, ter- the tarot, uh, uh, and the way that he kind of, uh, like you just said, uh, the collective unconscious, and the whole idea of oneness, at face value, it sounds great. Like You're like, oh yeah, we're, we're all sure. one. But the way you don't look at it, you're like, wait, this is a collectivist point of view. This is this is not at all telling you to be responsible for you. Like you are responsible for you, uh, mm-hmm. and you make a very good point there. And and that's something that you constantly, continuously see in the new age, and uh, it is at at its heart a Luciferian doctrine. Yes, and uh, the other interesting thing about Carl Jung is he was a double agent. Yes. Uh, uh, oh. oh. 088, I believe was his number. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah and so, you. I mean, so he was a product of the, you know, OSS and the Nazis. And so I, I, they have all those ties too. So, yeah, it's, it's a little disheartening because, uh, you know, when you find out a lot of these guys are, are all, um, all in on it on a, on a bizarre way of the trying to confuse you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, kind of, it kind of sucks, but, uh, you know, for me at least, because yeah. I, I really loved a lot of these guys back in the day. Like uh, it was, yeah. And I, I think where I've come to is that it doesn't mean that everything they said is, right. you know, nefarious or wrong or uh, or devoid of value. You sure. know, I, I, I always say if only people spent as much time adjudicating information as they do uh, vilifying or glorifying a source, we would be as a society in a very, very different place. I mean. Something that is the most inherently wrong or even evil still can offer tremendous wisdom. So for people like just because the mystery schools used a lot, a lot of those teachings later were then, uh, I mean, I wasn't there, but you know, I know I've certainly read of, you know, those uh, inspiring a lot of uh, black magic. That's been mm-hmm. weaponized, right? Yep. And that doesn't necessarily mean everything they taught was inherently bad or wrong. It means that in the wrong hands, you know, it can be very, very dark. So, yeah. So I think that that's kind of one of the big things that I, I, I'm really trying to impart pe- to people mm-hmm. is that it's not about the information itself. It's not even about the tool itself. It's not, you know, technology itself is neutral. It's what yep. is done with that. I don't want a transhuman, posthuman world. That's not, to me, that is, I, I think that's also very Luciferian. Absolutely. Um, and it's not, I don't see that as the best evolution for man. But somebody who has been, quote unquote, illuminated, I, I use that word intentionally, um, they do see it that way. They see that that's the next logical progression. And, you know, there are some of them are just genuinely psychopaths and they -hmm. exist. And some of them are really misled, deceived people, I I believe, you know, because I don't share that worldview. Uh, I don't know. I don't claim to have uh, access to the absolute truth. I I can only uh, do my best to seek it. But in my perspective, I think they're deceived and they're following a path that is a false light. Like, Absolutely, and hence the name Lucifer. It's like uh, yeah, it's also like blinded by the light. That the whole so- like, and that that's 
that's kind of like their uh, their shtick. That's how they kind of get through it. And even like going back to transhumanism, you see um, this has been attempted a couple times because at the end of every civilization, not every civilization, but many, usually at the, the tail end of it, you kind of get this hermaphrodite sort of situation going yes. on. And it, you, you see it with the Greeks, you saw it with the Romans, and then, you know, where we're leaving it now. And then another thing is like, usually, I, I can't remember where I read this. They're like, towards the end of civilizations, you find yeah. chefs become, uh, sorry? Oh, sorry. Didn't the the ancient Egyptians have one too? True. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. And then even right down to Baphomet, right? And, yep. and like, and it's, you always find at the tail end of a, of a, of a civilization, they, uh, I don't remember where I read this, where they say that they, uh, they glorify chefs, they make them celebrities, they, uh, they make blood sport uh, popular. So like the gladiator games and UFC, and then they start to make uh, this hermaphroditic um, like imagery and statues and feminize men and masculate women and kind of combine them together. And it almost feels like, I don't know, but it almost feels like right now they're taking those like our ancients used them as concepts and now they're actually trying to physically make them with this whole trans movement. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's pretty, um, I, I didn't really think I'd see this in my lifetime. I'm going to tell you like straight, like I remember back in the day when I'd read some of the stuff, I was like, I, I, I saw some of the Luciferian slash satanic stuff as more like, like reading mythology more like, right. like, a, like, a, I didn't really think like they they full on did this kind of stuff. I mean, later I, I realized they did, but now yeah. that I'm seeing it in my own time with this, uh, this thread of, of transgenderism, like all over the place and all that, I'm like, dude, they've done this before. The hermaphrodite is like, it's the, the alchemical marriage. It's in alchemy. It's called the alchemical, alchemical exactly. marriage. Yep. And it's, uh, it's scary to see like a story become reality. If that kind of makes sense. It's dark. Well, because it's yeah. a dark story. You're, you're not watching uh, unicorns and, uh, you know, puppies and whatever. <laughs> you know, it's uh, Care Bears. It's it's a very dark story. So, uh, I mean, not, that's not to say that I don't think that there's hope or that, you know, it, I, I do actually have tremendous hope for humanity. And I, I do think in the end it works out. I don't know what it'll be like in the meantime. I think it might get worse before it gets better. But, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely, and and it's it's a uh, it's very important to keep hope and to kind of you know focus on solutions, uh, mm-hmm. as well as understanding like the map that you're on and kind of looking at the world around you. But at the same right. time, kind of concentrate on solutions. And one of the thing, I mean, it came up in our conversation a couple of times. We can like not that everything they're teaching is necessarily negative. It's your approach mm-hmm. on how you use it. Like you could use a gun to feed your family, protect your family, or you can go around killing people. Right. And a lot of the stuff that's in in these things that we call black magic, white magic, whatever you want to call it. It almost seems like um, they wouldn't be studying it if there wasn't something about it that was functional. You know what right. I mean? And, and clearly they have been studying it. And, and then you can trace it back to where they're like, uh, well, they're actually sponsor someone to study it, which is cool. what I think the Tavistock Institute is kind of based on is like the reverse. En- so we can reverse engineer their tricks, like with music. Right. We, we know music can put us into a hypnotic state and, and change totally. your, your frame of mind. And we can make our own music. I mean, I'm a musician. And I, I think that's it's- really part of why I, you know, that field is so, uh, fascinating to me and why I, w- I, I want to dive into that research and, and expose it because they're using, I mean, the field of political science was created out of the social sciences and Tavistock yep. created the whole method of polling, which we think is, of as revealing the opinions of, you know, statistical uh, valuations when in reality, what they're doing is manipulating the perceptions yes. of people. 
That's right. And, you know, this was outlined in their manuscripts. They talked about it. It's not, this isn't like a conjecture or speculation or a conspiracy theory. They actually, in their own words, this is what they said. And they use those tools to uh, manipulate so much of the perceptions and the uh, the different fields that we are now so immersed in. You know, so mm-hmm. people... Yeah, I mean, political science was just, you know, one example, but it's it's a very powerful one. So Absolutely. I'm hoping that by by drawing the uh, exposing the genesis and the the funding connections and the just the the the, the lineage, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that by uncovering that and then possibly by sharing, you know, what the, what I find you know, to be possibly some of the, even if I can't prove the intent, at least the results, uh, that maybe we can reverse engineer some of it. Because like I said, I think the tools, certainly, I mean, psychology has some very powerful uh, benefits and some people have really had uh, miraculous results with it. But there's also a lot of dark players who definitely had an agenda to socially engineer the masses. And yeah, that's not so good. Uh, absolutely absolutely and like you're right because uh poli sci and, and and like the entry points of psychology uh most average people don't really think of the things that we're discussing today so to them it, it's kind of like going like you gave an ex- like it's almost like going to a priest i think that you're, yeah. you're mentioning that earlier it's kind of like they're going to their own version of of a secular religion and yes. uh it replaces yeah. that it's and, and we, yeah, it's because like they they remove the ideas and concepts of God or thinking of the individual or all that, and they, it, that void has to be replaced with something. So they'll pull that out and they'll replace it with something. And usually, what they replace it with isn't for our benefit. <laughs> it's usually, usually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, getting to the tail end of it, and I do want you to tell everybody about the stuff that you're working on because one of your projects uh, does fit with reverse engineering this and that's uh, you're putting on a little concert. So I want to hear about that and a lot of the other stuff that you got going on in, uh, in, uh, in the world of Courtney Turner. All right. Yeah. So we'll start with that. I'm doing an event. Uh, it is uh, right now we're calling it Rebels with, with a Cause, although we're looking into the URL. So uh, it, it might be changed slightly. But Cause stands for Creative Artists Uniting for the Sovereignty of Everyone. And it is going to be, uh, as of tomorrow, we'll lock in the event, but it looks like it's going to be June 3rd. It is going to be a, a day and a half event. And it's really just artists for liberty collaborating. So we've got some really great bands already interested. We have uh, several speakers and panels. I'm an aerial acrobatic artist, so I will be performing and speaking. So definitely that will be on my website as soon as we get that locked in. So hopefully by the end of this week, possibly the beginning of next week, we should have that. And that will be on my website. And you can start getting some early bird tickets because I think we're going to probably do uh, a discounted for some early bird people. Uh, if we sell out, we're going to expand. So uh, it really it really may turn into a whole festival. So, And the plan is for that to go on tour and really be kind of a movement to inject freedom-minded people into the culture and freedom messaging into the culture. So other than that, I have several things going on. I have the Courtney Turner podcast. I spell my name like Courtney, C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y, Turner uh, podcast. You can find me at CourtneyTurner.com and that'll have links to all the social medias and all the different audio and video platforms on which you can find my podcast. I also have a the Pirate Stream Media which we started a show called Dialectical Dissidents. 
And that is with the great guys at The Last American Vagabond, Brian Christian, and uh, Rebunk News, Scott Armstrong. And Scott is also working with me on this event uh, that will be on June 3rd. So that is that show. And then we, I also have, we have not aired yet, but we're about to. And it's a roundtable discussion group, uh, a women's roundtable discussion group. I say it's a counter to The View, but... Really, we have nothing in common with The View, except that it is women discussing culture and, uh, yeah. But we do more of, uh, like, you know, crypto history. Uh, we oh, definitely yeah. Conspiracy. We definitely talk about culture and, you know, and, of course, like, women's issues and that kind of thing. So that's a really fun show. And then I have my show, Wim, What is Movement?, which is about to launch on The Way Forward. And so I will have a link where those who uh, come to, you can join The Way Forward and uh, get a discount. Uh, if you come through my WIM show, it's WIM, What is Movement? And it's we explore ways that movement helps you to heal emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And then uh, I also have, uh, we're about to get started, I think in March, I'm going to be, we, we're still brainstorming on the name, but I have a show with, I've done a couple of episodes with my friend Rachel Wilson, and we're going to be launching. So, I don't know how many shows that is, but I'm busy. <laughs> you you certainly are, and uh, I really do appreciate your work and everything you do. Um, you. you actually are definitely one of the podcasts I push on people the most. Uh, there's like oh, I have like you. I have about seven or eight, and you're definitely on that list, you know. And oh, I'm so honored. Thank you. Yeah, I really no, appreciate that. Definitely. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for coming on the show. I apologize for all the technical difficulties. Uh, that was weird. <laughs> it was weird. I don't know what the hell that's all about. It, it's funny. Uh, I remember reading back in the day where people would comment that when they would mention the Tavistock Institute and message boards, they'd get kicked out or things would happen weird. And so I, I don't know if that's what it was, but it definitely feels weird. <laughs> it was definitely, definitely weird. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm like debating whether I should say this because it, it might get locked off. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, I mean, maybe I'll save it for after. And if you want to share it, you can. But <laughs> <laughs> Definitely want to hear it. Yeah. Definitely want to hear it. Okay, Courtney, you, thank you, you so want, much. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, say it on here. Yeah, I, I would love for you to say oh, it on here. I, I, I thought you didn't want to say it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I've just, I, I've shared this story before. But, uh, you know, when I was seven years old, the CIA tried to recruit me. and Really? Uh, yeah, so... I, I always like kind of make the joke about like if they have this like open file on me. I mean, you know, really just joking. My mom is not very, uh, you know, she's not nearly as seeped in all, although now she listens to my podcast. So I probably can't say that anymore. But, you know, at the time she was definitely not nearly as far down the conspiracy rabbit hole as I was. And when I said it to her, I was expecting her to reassure me and be like, yeah, Courtney, that's ludicrous. You know, of yeah. course we don't have like this was so long ago, it was decades ago. And her immediate response was, uh, oh, no, definitely. <laughs> really? Like, Wait, well, hold I on. don't know. You I left mean, this honestly, for the end of the podcast. I want to hear more about this. <laughs> honestly, I don't think so. But I but every time like something like that happens, I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is. Uh, it was weird. And maybe we could talk more about the CIA and, and you later. <laughs> Well, yeah. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. And I really do appreciate you giving me your time. I know like, you're crazy busy as you just listed all the millions of things you do. So I appreciate you. I, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And uh, this was really, this was super fun. So I look forward to more conversations. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah.